0: Please look to Luke chapter 4, we're in verses 22 through 30. Let's go ahead and read that passage. Luke 4, 22 through 30. And all spoke well of him, and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, Is this not Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself what we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up for three years and six months. And a great famine came over the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath, in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their mist, he went away. You know, you can see the rage in the heart of natural man very early on in his life. You can see even a very young child clenching his fists with rage and thrashing out at the one that is caring for him with all of his might, driving into his caretaker with his nails or his fist. And we all but laugh sometimes because it's almost amusing to have someone that weighs a mere 10 pounds thrashing out. I can't help but think during those times It is a good thing that that child does not weigh 200 pounds. A child in those circumstances, swinging at another person, thrashing at another person, gouging at someone with their nails, with no concern over how it would affect the other person. But the truth is, we grow, we begin to mature. There's normally at least a, a level of restraint that we have as we grow, which is the restraining grace of the Lord. I mean, let's amen that. That on a regular basis, you don't have people of such size thrashing out at people every time that they are, they are angry. There's times. Let's be honest. We've seen it. We've seen it very much over history. We've seen it over the past few years where the Lord removes restraining grace and the true desires of the hearts of men are revealed. It can happen in the blink of an eye. It can happen oh so quickly. You will have people that are gathered at a sporting event where their team just won, cheering and celebrating. Throwing drinks in the air and yelling. And they walk into the city streets. Began to flip over cars and burn them. Smash buildings. Fall into riots. People end up getting injured. Businesses ransacked. We've seen it after court decisions that were unpopular. Unpopular. You have at these times and other times like them, we could name many such situations in history that happened oh so quickly. And you can look at those circumstances and say, what happened? What changed in this person that this person would go just in a matter of moments from being civilized, from being accommodating, For laughing and joking. To revelry, to rage. To even murderous intent. Disregarding the lives of others. Disregarding the property of others. Disregarding the work that someone put to create a a business. Disregarding the lives of other people. Someone who had been raised by their family, brought up, fed, educated. Parents had thrown them parties, and then someone sees that person on the street, gives no regard to all the people who have invested in that person's life. And the heart of that person is revealed. So many of those, I think it's totally reasonable. You can look at these events, especially over the last decades. These last 70 years, as so much of this is so clearly recorded, not just in books or in photographs, but on clear video, shown on the news, shown on television, shown on internet videos. I don't think it's saying, I don't think it's a stretch to say that A great many of those people who were involved in those activities were involved in some kind of religious service earlier that month. They were gathered together. They were saying things about God. They were saying things about other people. They were making certain declarations. But that which is within the heart of man was revealed at that time. We have here a contrast between man's religion and true religion. Man's religion and true religion. What man's religion thinks about Jesus, believes about Jesus, and how man's religion responds to Jesus. I have three points that I want to pull out of this. Say this man's religion desires the idea of Jesus. Man's religion has a desire for a Messiah, a messianic figure that would come forward and make right all that is wrong. But man's religion falsely identifies the real problem in the world and thereby has a wrong solution and thereby. That's the wrong Messiah. Man's religion doesn't desire the message of Jesus. That second point man's religion desires not the message of Jesus. Man's religion, carnal men, find the message of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be offensive. I know we generally don't do anything different around Easter other than preach the good news of Jesus Christ, His life, His death, and His resurrection, as we do each and every week. But I was fascinated how bold people are getting during this time that so many were making very overt statements, declaring things very clearly about what was in their heart in regard to Jesus, saying things like, I don't need a man who lived 2,000 years ago to forgive my sins. There is nothing wrong with me now. Offended, as these were tweeted out, sent out on social media, declared on different videos, I don't need. That's your problem. You don't see anything wrong with yourself. Carnal man desires not the message of Jesus. For the message of Jesus, first and foremost, declares that there is a problem with you. You are not acceptable before God as you came into this world. You are dead, and your trespasses and sins. You need help. You need to be changed. You need the grace of God because the wrath of God is abiding over your head as it says at the end of John 3. All who do not believe the wrath of God is over them. Thirdly, thirdly, you see that man's religion desires to silence Jesus. Carnal men desire to silence the message of the gospel and they can go about it different ways some will mock some will distort and some will outright destroy the messenger you see this happening right here you see this happening right here in this synagogue in which Jesus grew up in the tables turned so quickly how that which is shown at the beginning of this passage was but a front was but a facade jesus begins to poke jesus begins to prod at man's real problem their real problem within that synagogue each and every one of the people there they become offended they begin to mock they begin to dismiss, then they seek to silence. Start with that first point. Man's religion desires the idea of Jesus. Let's let's remember where we left off. It was the greatest sermon that they had ever heard. and They were even interpreting that sermon through their own messianic lens, through What they believed a Messiah should accomplish. For they were hearing what Jesus said and they were viewing it through that lens, through what they desired the Messiah to accomplish. Get rid of all those other people out there, get rid of, of all these other issues that are here. Luke 4, 20 and 21, and he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And as we said, that's not the totality of his sermon. That was the introduction of the sermon, or that was the, the summary of his sermon. And Luke's just giving you that. He's not giving you the whole sermon here. You weren't celebrating just him saying one sentence. He preached. He expounded upon those passages, leaving out a very significant portion of it. And we see, as Luke says here in Luke 4, that all spoke well of him. That's a great beginning. Small-town boy comes home. He preaches a hometown sermon. It says they marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Certainly, the words of Jesus would be full of grace. But grace must be rightly understood. You must share with the person how that grace is obtained it is granted to you. This grace is not just given to everyone everywhere. This grace is given to those who believe upon Christ. Who come to Christ. This grace, although it's free, it's free to all who receive it. It's not free, though. It wasn't purchased freely. Was purchased through his life and his death and his resurrection. And this points to the sufficiency of Jesus and in the insufficiency of the works of carnal men. Though it's free, it's not given without consequence. There, is, there are requirements in order to receive this grace. And those who gathered here desired the grace of God to be upon them. They desire to be partakers of grace, but not the grace that Jesus provides. For the grace that Jesus provides requires that you see your need of Him. You can see the reticence here, even in recognizing Jesus as Messiah. You see that in their words here. Is this not Joseph's son? and questioning him, marveling at him and then questioning him. Don't we know him? I mean, his father's done work for me. He used to be an apprentice for his father. There's probably things in people's houses that they have that perhaps Jesus or Joseph made. They knew him well. And he wasn't outstanding among them. They weren't looking at him growing up thinking, that's going to be the Messiah. They looked at him as a very ordinary person. They're almost looking down upon him. And Jesus responds to them Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb Physician, heal yourself. Jesus recognizes their pride. They don't want a Messiah like Jesus. They don't want a Messiah. They want a Messiah. They want a Messiah. But they want a Messiah who is going to be their guy. Their hometown guy. That's going to look at them and see the goodness within them. Who's going to treat them differently than other people. Look at the words they say. We heard... What we have heard you did at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. They want to show. Sure, they received his preaching. They received what was the greatest sermon they had ever heard up until that point in their lives. This preaching is not sufficient. Your messianic declaration is not sufficient. The words of the prophets is not sufficient. You did those miracles in Capernaum. You did those tricks over there. I mean, it's your hometown. We made you what you are. Don't we deserve something? This is where you're from. When you're a hometown boy, should you not be doing more here than you even did in Capernaum? Maybe if you do some tricks. Maybe if you do something in front of me. Do we not see? Do you not see Herod and others making such statements to Jesus? Why don't you do some of those tricks? You did that over here. So he's just a magician. He's just there to entertain people oh dear friends and so many so many that that bear the name of christ but a great many do not truly bear the name of christ see miracles in this way they see them as as just mere tricks as a show that jesus put on as as that which is supposed to be put on even now by the church but not tricks. Jesus didn't do these just so, okay, I'm going to do this and now you're going to believe in me. Just believe in Him because He's so fantastic. The purpose of these miracles weren't to enrich people. They weren't to save people from working. Remember John chapter 6? Jesus feeds the multitude. right? And instead of being like Peter was When there was the great catch of fish, he says, forgive me for I'm a sinner. No, they say, this is great. This is great. We don't have to work. You know how much work it is to go and plant all the wheat and then pull up the weeds and harvest the wheat and then go and use the winnowing fork and separate the wheat and the chaff And then you've got to go grab the wheat. You've got to bring it in the kitchen. You've got to grind the wheat. And you've got to mix the the flour together with oil and water and sugar and salt and yeast. And then you've got to let it rise. And then you've got to let it bake. It's a lot of work. It's a lot of work to go out and to fish. Most of the time this fishing was done at night. You understand something that The miracle of the great catch of fish. The miracle of the great catch of fish. It wasn't just a miracle that they caught a lot of fish. They were fishing all night. Why? Because they used drag nets. And those drag nets don't work during the day because the fish can see the net. That was the miracle there. They caught this, this, uh, this great amount of fish during the day. Peter saw that miracle. It's great work to catch fish. You don't have much time before they begin to spoil. They didn't have the, the methods that we have now. Sure, they could mix things with salt for a time, but they didn't have refrigeration as we do now. And here's a man he can just make bread, he can just make fish. Let's make him our king. It's not what they should have seen. Some not what they should have seen. Their hunger. Their hunger points to a spiritual deficit within them. There's a deficiency within them. Jesus is giving them bread because He is the greater manna that comes from heaven. All who come to Me and drink will never thirst. Feed upon Jesus. You will never hunger. These are spiritual realities. These miracles are pointing to spiritual deficits that we have naturally and pointing to spiritual realities that Jesus creates through His supernatural work. These people weren't interested in the grace that He provided. It required that they see themselves as poor, blind, lame, and dead. That's offensive. That's offensive. Hometown boy, come back and talk to us like this. They desired a Messiah who would recognize their innate goodness would treat them special because of where they live, because of their hometown. There are great reasons to be proud of the culture that you're a part of or that you come from. There are great reasons to celebrate the country that you're a citizen of. There's great reasons to be proud of the state that you're a part of. Amen. You're Texans in this room. But you must not take that beyond what it is. You must not not apply that to yourself spiritually in some way. As though you are in some way better than someone else because you were born in a certain place. That's what they desire. Shouldn't we be treated special? I mean, you're from here after all. They lacked humility. Just pride. Just pride. They looked for a Messiah, and they saw but their own reflection, and that's not Jesus. There's a great many people nowadays that look through the Scriptures and look for Jesus, but they see but their own reflection because they humble not themselves to see who Jesus actually is. Such a Messiah is no Messiah at all. Such a Messiah is is of, of no goodness to carnal man, to natural man. Such a Messiah flows very well with man's religion, acknowledging the goodness in each man. See, but true religion, true religion recognizes. That Jesus came forward to do that which none of us could accomplish. Not just giving us a boost. Not just helping us out. But Jesus did what was completely impossible for all carnal men. And we have our our own religion that is practiced now, and we seek to justify it, saying, well, I just believe in science sometimes. It's a joke you can say. I just believe in science. Bertrand Russell, an avowed agnostic, was asked the question, he said, what would you say if you ended up meeting God at the final judgment? He says in a very... Arrogant and prideful way. Not enough evidence, Lord. Not enough evidence. And the people here desired evidence. Give me some evidence. Here's a man breathing God's air, using the body that God's given him, distinct from every other creature in the world. The heavens declare his glory, and Bertrand Russell says, Not enough evidence, Lord. Not enough evidence. They desire evidence here as well. But Jesus' evidence was was the prophet's. He owed no one a miracle. God owes you no answers. We may ask questions in times of difficulty and trial and pain. We may ask questions. God owes us nothing. Jesus did not have to give in to their demands. We are not Lord. We are not his Lord. He is Lord. I know sometimes we 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 err in our we, we mean so well in our sharing of the gospel. We say, won't you just make Jesus Lord of your life? That's fine, as long as you don't actually think that you're making Jesus Lord. I remember a really lame track that I had one time. I think it was a blue track. And it had a little chair, and you were supposed to put Jesus on the chair. It was a little cross. You're making Jesus Lord of your life. You've accepted Him as Savior. Make Him Lord. Oh, what, a sale, what salesmanship that we get ourselves involved in. You don't make Jesus Lord, they don't make Jesus Lord. Jesus owed them nothing. You would even look at this, and, you know, so many modern evangelists, you think, well, why not just do the the miracles here? Why not just do what they want if that's all they need? They just need a miracle to believe. He will not make himself subordinate to them. He brought all things into existence from absolutely nothing. He owes no man anything. We exist because of him. He does not exist because of us. We don't make Jesus anything. No, dear friends. What you must do is recognize and acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. You must see his lordship you must see his holiness. You must recognize that he is due your worship because he has given you life. And he has given you breath. And he has shown you mercy. If you are alive right now before the sound of my voice, he has shown you mercy. Because, friends, every time we sin, we are, we are due the wrath and the curse of God And God has shown mercy to us in that He does not smite us out the first time that we sin. He has shown us mercy in that when our first parents sinned, we were not completely smote out, not smitten, not destroyed. That's what you must recognize. You must see the lordship of Jesus. and You must see your own sinfulness. Man's religion has... An idea of Jesus. They have an idea of a messianic figure. You can see that even in our literature. You see the theme of a messianic figure flowing throughout our literature. We recognize things are not right. Things are not in order. Someone needs to make things right. And so even the most carnal of people recognize that reality. Don't recognize the source of the problem. The source of the problem is the sin of man, and the sin of man is deep within his heart. Secondly, man's religion desires not the message of Jesus. Carnal men do not desire his message. Look at verses 24 through 27 in Luke 4. And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the heavens were shut up three years and six months. And a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. And there were many leaders in Israel in the time of the prophet of Elisha and none of them were cleansed, but only Naaman, the Syrian. The story's offensive. This isn't a story they like to think about. This isn't a great time in Israel's history. Israel was in great rebellion against God. Israel was worshiping false gods. Israel had begun to worship the gods of those who were around her and Israel was being judged by God. They had broken the Mosaic Covenant and God was judging them during this time. And you see that in the famine with Elijah. Israel suffering during this time suffering under the time of this great famine. And the Lord relieved not the famine in Israel, but he sent Elijah. And Elijah went to a widow and to her son, which he did two miracles for them. They were able to eat until the end of that famine. He ended up raising her son from the dead. Many Israelites died during that time, were not raised from the dead. And this was sent to a Gentile. Someone who the Jews saw as unclean, someone who they saw as outside of the covenant. They're in the land of Sidon, a wicked, wicked area, a very prosperous area, but a very wicked area, a very carnal area a place where they, they worshiped great idols. This widow, this widow had faith in the one true God. And you're seeing that Israel is faithless, but this Gentile woman has faith in God, has faith in the true God. But us go so far as to say this widow had faith in the child of the woman who was to come would crush the head of the serpent. And she's blessed in her faith as she acted in faith and made food for Elijah. She believed it to be the last meal they would make. The story of the leprosy with Elisha. See that in 2 Kings 5. Remember Naaman the Syrian general, a great man, a great leader, one who was ruling over Israel during this time, one the Lord was using in judgment over Israel, punishing Israel through the hand of the Syrians. And this great man had a great skin disease and he was sent to Elisha. Do you remember Elisha told him, this is how you can be healed. Go down to the Jordan River. Dip yourself. Why was a Syrian healed and not an Israelite? That's Jesus' point here. Were there not many there, many who had leprosy that were not healed by Elisha? What's his point? Why is Jesus emphasizing these two stories that are offensive here in the synagogue? These two stories that are very offensive to his hometown now there's they look at the story with jealous eyes because these gentiles were blessed rather than Jews that's missing the point of the miracles that is myopic that is short-sighted that is not rightly understanding the purpose of the miracles it's not rightly understanding what the miracles are communicating Because what you see there is a misunderstanding. If you just say, well, we're Jews, why didn't we get this miracle? Why weren't some of our lepers healed? Why weren't some of our widows blessed? I mean, they were suffering after all, and yet these Gentiles were blessed. So You're missing the point. These miracles demonstrated the continued faithfulness of God despite the faithlessness of Israel. These stories are a reminder of God's faithful promise that He will send a Messiah even though man is sinful. Even though Israel was sinful, they would not be wiped out. God would be faithful to His promise. Even here now. This is a reminder here. That God will accomplish his purpose. God will crush to the head of the serpent, God will make all things new through the life, the death of Jesus Christ and His resurrection. even though there are those in Israel that are faithless, that seek to put him to death, that seek to remove him. God in His sovereign decree, is going to accomplish his purpose of redemption even through the sinful actions of these men. Those in the line of Adam, those who are born totally depraved, those who are born in the line of Adam, those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, those who are born in the line of Adam, those who are blind, who are deaf, who are lame, who are dead, who are spiritually helpless, Can turn to the Messiah. Can see their spiritual insufficiency. Can see the great mountain of their sin and their guilt. And even that of those who came before them. The Lord was being faithful even though Israel was being judged. Faithful Lord. God was showing his faithfulness even in showing mercy during these times. And specifically showing it to these Gentiles. This widow thought it was of a greater benefit to feed the prophet of God who spoke the truth of God. than it was to save food for her own son. She trusted the word of God. Elijah spoke and she believed it. To believe upon the word of God. That's what was required here. That's what the people in the synagogue needed. They needed to believe in the Word of God, to believe what Jesus had said, to believe what the prophets had said. The Syrian general, Naaman, remember the struggle he had. Oh, didn't he well up with pride? Why should I go dip myself in this nasty Jewish river? There are so many better rivers in Syria. And he begins to name the different rivers that are there. They're they're grander. They're more magnificent. He had to be humble. He had to humble himself. Not trust in his heritage. Not trust in his pedigree not trust in his standing as a general none of those things would help him he can go wash himself in all those Syrian rivers he will still be a leper he can go and boast in his standing as a general he will still be a leper he had to trust the word of god he had to trust what the prophet of god said he had to humble himself and believe the word of god he was even angry He goes and he visits Elisha. He sends out his servant. Sends out his servant to this general. What does this guy think he is? I'm a general. I'm ruling over the. I could have you put to death. Send your servant out to me. No. Man's religion is grounded in the pride of his self-worth. Do not name it, does not name and give a beautiful picture here of man's religion? And man trusting in himself. Trusting in his own goodness. Assuming what he deserves from God. Just as man's religion will not thrive through man's efforts and his work. Traveling different places. Climbing up and down stairs. Kneeling, standing, bowing. Buying indulgences. Oh, man's religion is replete with that. All of the things that you can do to earn favor with God, to sustain favor with God, to give other people favor with God. All of your efforts, all of your endeavors that you might do, they look so good. They look so shiny on the outside, they look so religious. That's a facade. It's a lie. None of them deal with the heart. None of them deal with what is inside of us. This is not so with Christianity, not so with true religion. You come to Jesus Christ through the narrow gate, or you enter not at all. All that is required is that you see your need of Him, that you turn to Him. It was difficult for the people that were here hearing Jesus preach. As we mentioned, He left off part of Isaiah 61 and verse 2, and the day of vengeance of our God. They recognized that. They noticed that that was missing. God's wrath is supposed to fall out on the Gentiles. God's wrath is supposed to fall out on these unclean people, these people living in darkness. And so it is. That's not why Jesus came the first time, though. That's not what he's doing at this time. He will come back and do that. What they see not, though, is that they are those in darkness. They are those that are blind. They are those that are unclean. As Paul says, not all who are in Israel are Israel. Merely being a physical descendant of Abraham does not mean that you are in a good standing with God. You can find Israelites who walked through the wilderness, did not believe in God, died in their sin, put into outer darkness. Hebrews talks about them. No, they needed the mercy of God. They needed to see their need Of Jesus, they desire not this message. This message that speaks so low of them speaks so greatly of their need of a true Messiah, one from whom righteousness comes. And so, thirdly, we see that man's religion desires to silence the message of Jesus. Carnal men may like the idea of Jesus, but they do not desire His message. They do not desire the fullness of the gospel proclamation. And man's religion, as it was practiced in the synagogue, desired to silence Him. Desired to close His mouth. Desired to put Him away that He would not be able to speak anymore for they hated what He said. Look at verse 28 through 30. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath. And they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went away. And what you see here, what you see within these pages here, The darkness that is being revealed in these pages is that which lied within the depths of their hearts. These people that Jesus grew up with likely attended wedding parties with Him, birthday parties, gathered in the synagogue, traveled to the temple together. That's how it would normally be done. You'd travel with those that you lived around. They initially gathered together to hear him preach with pride, pleased at their hometown boy that was making a name for himself. He's becoming famous and he comes home. But now they despise him. Hatred is, is burning within their hearts. i tell you something I, I can't help but notice. A foreshadowing here as Jesus preaches in his hometown, and they seek to put him out. Notice how we began this passage, and they were speaking praises of him, talking about his his great ability, his gracious speech. They marveled at him. And here they are. How much time could it have been? An hour? Two hours at most? Not much time. from celebration, praising Him, seeking to destroy Him, seeking to silence Him, seeking to kill Him. Is that not what we see during the Passion Week? I thought I had found something really sophisticated here. I was like, wow, this, it looks like Lucas foreshadowing I began to make notes on that and write about it and then I began to read commentaries and like everyone else noticed that as well. I am really, really good at discovering things that 50 other people have discovered. I've got a real knack for that. But there are those that are going to gather at the beginning of that week. They're going to cry, Hosanna, Hosanna. They're going to lay down palm leaves as he walks on a colt. By the end of the week, they will gather together and they will take his life. You should find that shocking. You should find that deeply fascinating. Because that has happened time and time again historically. You're seeing it happening right here in the synagogue. It'll happen other times in Jesus' life, but you especially see it there during the time of the Passion Week. And why is it? Why do you have these ones who have such fervor and such outward religious drive and and such verbally giving assent to Jesus, praising Jesus, speaking so high of Jesus and it turns to murderous rage. I don't even know the amount of times that I have heard someone speak of how much they love God and love Jesus and go to church, and that same person in murderous rage will turn their back and walk headlong into an abortion clinic and take the life of their child. And it's a facade. It's not a real religion. That one person that is there before you, almost crying at one point, will turn around and begin to dance their way across the parking lot as the rest of the parking lot begins to give them a standing ovation and cheer them on. It's a facade of religion. You may fool men. You may fool a church for a time. But that which is in your heart will be revealed. The truth of that religion is going to be demonstrated in time. And notice this they didn't seek to engage with him, they didn't seek to talk this through with him. They had no legitimate response, they desired nothing more than to silence his message. They had no appropriate response from the book of Isaiah or from the prophets. No, just pride within their own hearts. Just a desire for Jesus to recognize their innate goodness and bless them for it. And God shows a restraining grace here. For this is not the time, as it says This was not the time. So he passes through their midst, And he restrains them. The silence does not happen. This restraining grace is granted here during this time. The Lord does not allow them to follow through with the desires of their hearts at this time. So you must ask yourself the question from where does this evil come? Where did this spring itself forward? It is it is from the hearts of men. It is there deep within the hearts of men. Now there are those that I've seen it most especially over the last couple weeks, and they have a very loud voice on social media and on the Internet that have expressed things that I find to be very disturbing and distressing. And there's a great many things that you can look at and you can see within the church in this country where we err, where we sin, where we falter, where we need to learn from, where we need to repent, each of these things. But, But it is to have a most despicable anthropology. And anthropology, I mean your understanding of man, your understanding of who we are as humans and what our real problem is. It is to have a most despicable anthropology to go and to see all of the evil in a culture and a society and say all of this is here within the church because of the church and all of this is happening in the culture because of the church, and I saw a most ridiculous conclusion that someone made, so much so that I began to interact with them on our Twitter account, and it was incredible. It was the week before we're going to baptize two people. It's the week before I'm going to baptize my own daughter, and we have people making statements such zeal but lacking in knowledge and making statements and saying that transgenderism as you see it in this country is the fruit of the Baptist theology in this country. And most especially that of believers baptism where an individual trusts in Jesus Christ and that is being recognized in baptism. a most incredible conclusion Most ignorant statement, most absurd view. First off, there is no one in this country that is looking at something like the institution of believers' baptism as it is practiced in Baptist churches and coming to the conclusions that people are coming to in transgenderism. I think you could use Romans 1 to better understand what is going on in this culture. In this way. But I say this to say this there is sin in the heart of man, and he doesn't need help. There's evil in the heart of man, and it flows outward from him. And there is the desire. There is the desire of these carnal men those that practice man's religion to silence the church, to silence the voice of the church, to squash them out. And those that silence the voice of the church, those who eliminate them, those who remove them, those who persecute them and kill them or send them away in some kind of a diaspora, believe they are freeing themselves believe they are setting themselves in a a greater freedom and control, and they they recognize not that they're fully further entrenching their enslavement to sin, removing the only source from which they can ever understand true justice, true righteousness, removing the only means whereby they can have peace with God. See that foreshadowing happening here. This foreshadowing of a sinful man seeking to silence Jesus. Carnal men, they like this idea of a Messiah. They like the idea of Jesus. Man's religion desires a Messiah, but recognizes not his true problem, the true source of his problem. Desires not the message of Jesus, but desires the silence. His message, as they will say later on, crucify Him, crucify Him, but God shows His faithfulness here that the message of Christ was not silenced. The message of Christ continued to go forward, and even when Christ was killed upon the cross, it did not silence the message. It rather was declared even louder in his resurrection. And declared even louder at the time of Pentecost as they went forward and began to preach in foreign tongues. It was declared even now. As those that would persecute the church really work to spread the message of the good news of Christ Jesus, really begin to remove the facade of religion and man's religion and demonstrate the evil that is there within their hearts. And dear friend, that is my desire for you that you would see this, that you would see the root of sin, the depth of sin, The seriousness of sin, the, the fact that sin is ubiquitous, it is there in all people everywhere. It is there in all cultures. No one gets a free pass on this. And with each and every person individually, it must be dealt with. And it comes through entering that narrow gate. It comes through seeing the seriousness of your sin and having no hope in yourself not giving yourself brownie points because of the family that you came from or the church that you attend or the country that you're a part of. You get no such points. Seeing the greatness of the law of God, the ways in which you fall short, finding no hope in yourself, finding hope in the only means that has been given. That means, if Jesus Christ, you must see the depth and the seriousness of your sin. You must see your own hopelessness, your own worthlessness. This is not a popular message nowadays. Someone will tell you, this is not good for someone's self-esteem. It is better that you see yourself rightly. A true physician, a good physician, will tell you the seriousness of your cancer. We'll tell you the depth of it. We'll tell you how this is something that is malignant, that is, you're in dire straits. You must act now. There is but one means, one opportunity, and that is in Jesus Christ. And in Him you can have life, in Him you can have freedom from sin, in Him you can have peace with God. In him you can have life everlasting if you will but come to him. Turn from your sin and trust in him. You will be saved.